We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, we're back with John Andrasik, who you probably know, you certainly know from Five for Fighting, and now you also probably know from his activism on behalf of people that were abandoned during the American evacuation of Afghanistan. John, welcome back to the show. Emily, nice to see you again. Yeah, it's great to have you back on. And you are going back on tour uh, this summer, which is interesting for many reasons. You said before we started taping that you're you're literally going to be back on the bus. Um, (laughs) And it's also sort of going to be a time when we're emerging from COVID and and live music will hopefully have something of a renaissance. Um, Are you looking forward to being back on the bus? (laughs) Well, I am. I told them to book a tour. I mean, it's, uh, I think you're right. Um, you know, for the last five, six years, I've been doing a lot of dates, but it's more uh, solo shows, string quartet, more intimate audiences and, and kind of shorter tours, couple week tours. But I think you're right. You know, I think uh, you don't, you don't know what you got till it's gone and not being able to play live for a couple of years for so many um, songwriters and bands. I think everybody's dying to get out there. Audiences are dying to get out there. And uh, I was just kind of looking forward to playing and thought, yeah, let's put the uh, let's put the rock band back out. So we're actually doing a summer tour. Uh, we're bringing with us a band called the Verve Pipe. Uh, you're a little young, but they had a hit no. song around two, in the 2000s, kind of around Superman 100 years called The Freshman. And we would do radio shows together when we were your age and <laughs> and we would have fun. And so we're, we're, we're going back to the future and, and doing a month of dates in July. And it's funny when you say about back in, back in the bus, because we could barely find a bus. There were so many <laughs> bands going out. We're basically scrounging to get a bus and a driver. So we got, we got a bus, we got a driver, we got the band, uh, you know, we got some ibuprofen, but I'm very excited. Um, you know, one thing with this song too, it's kind of re-energized me of, of you know, a song that, you know, didn't get one spin on the radio, but had an impact in the culture. Um, so it's kind of re-energized me to, to, to not just um, write more songs, but also to get back and play live. So we're very excited about it. And folks listening, you know, all the dates are at fiveforfighting.com and we hope you see, we hope we see everyone. Yeah, I'm looking at the dates right now. You're really going everywhere, um, all the way up in, in Bayfield, Wisconsin. Have you played there before? It's, a, it's an interesting place. I have not. No, we're going a few places we haven't played before. Other places we haven't been to in 10, 15 years, like Birmingham, Alabama. That's kind of where Five for Fighting kind of kicked off one of the spots. So I'm kind of going back to some some spots I haven't been to in a while um, and then going to new places. But, yeah, we're, we're going to be close to to everybody with this uh, quartet tour in May and then the summer tour in July and August. So, uh, yeah, it should be great. That's awesome. And I mean, people take for granted, obviously, the the argument for live music, and we never really thought it was something that could possibly go away. And then, of course, yeah. it did. So, John, what is your sort of perspective or if you had to describe why you value as an artist playing live music and then maybe as a a music consumer yourself listening to live music that's a lot to kind of encompass because it's you know in some ways so hard to describe but how would you describe why it's it's so valuable well you know i think there's nothing like being together the kind of the social experience um 
with singing songs together. You know, as an artist, there's nothing better than having somebody sing your song back to you. It's, you know, and you never get tired of that. And, um, but I think, I think it's a community thing. Uh, I think um, to, to be with people that uh, emotionally um, help us get through the day. I mean, for the really music for so many people is, is an escape. Um, and, you know, like sports is for me. And, you know, to go see, you know, I've seen Billy Joel and Elton John 15 times and I'll go see them, you know, while they're, while they're touring. And it brings me back, right? It brings me back to a, another time. So there's, there's so many reasons I think it's, it's, it's mentally healthy to go share music with bands and songwriters you like. And as I said, from an artist's perspective, I think so many of us didn't realize how important it was to our wellness. Um, it's just, you know, that's what you do. You express yourself. And, uh, you know, you can do it in your room on Zoom <laughs> for audiences, but it's not quite the same. And uh, and I think I think we all and, and my musicians, you know, my musicians didn't play for two years. And when that's such a big part of your being, can you imagine not doing what you've kind of spent your whole life training for? You know, certainly it's what pays your bills. Um, we did a little tour at the end of last year, a quartet tour. And uh, some of my string players were crying the first gig. They were so emotional just to be doing what they love. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's awesome. Uh, it's, it's also kind of, I think we're all ready for this pandemic to be at least put in the back mirror to some degree. So what better way than to, you know, put on, strap on the Les Paul and, you know, hit the piano and uh, sing some songs and, and, uh, and be together. That sounds wonderful. Um, and is it also, I am i don't know whether this is true, but is it true? Do you think you've you've gained a new audience through your political activism um, in the last you know half year, if, if not longer? Well, we'll see. Uh, you know, I've certainly gained some and lost some. You know, it's uh, the reality is when you put out a song that's critical of one side or the other, um, there'll be people angry with you and there'll be people that support you. Um, and you know, Emily, we talked about this last time, uh, with blood on my hands, you know, I would have written the same song if Donald Trump or Republican were president. I'm sure many of the folks that are new fans probably wouldn't be fans. And many of the folks criticizing me would probably be accrediting me, but I'm kind of used to that tribalism. I hope that, um, I hope that it doesn't have too much an effect either way. Uh, though I, I do think, you know, playing the song, um, is a new tone, a new uh, experience. Uh, we saw that on the, the last tour where I would basically, at the end of the show, I would ask my quartet to leave the stage because um, I didn't want them to be caught up in the, the backlash. <laughs> but I'd also talk about why it matters and it's a moral message and it still goes on. I mean, here we are, you know, in February, you know, um, we still have Americans trapped. We have you know, 20,000 commandos who have a choice of either flipping to the Taliban or evacuating. And I'm still on the calls, the same calls with the, the, the evac groups. The president still has no interest, it seems, uh, or the State Department in assisting evacuating those we promised um, to, to take care of. So that just continues. Um, but again, I think, uh, you know, for me, it was important to say that and uh, the folks that respond, um, that's great. And the folks that uh, are upset, that's that's fine. That's America, you know. And and if you want to come to my show because you like the song, great. And if you don't want to come because you don't like the song, 
that's America. And uh, there's there's something kind of beautiful in that. What have you learned um, about the country over the course of your recent activism? Is there anything that surprised you being on those calls and, and trying to figure out what's going on in the, our vast federal bureauc- bureaucracy and uh, the Defense Defa- Department's vast bureaucracy and the State Department's vast bureaucracy? Um, are there things that have surprised you or is there a couple, are there lessons that you feel like you've taken away from the process? Well, certainly on, you know, uh, we're all just, I think anybody who's involved with this effort is, is disgusted with the State Department. Um, I understand that some of them have a very hard job and I understand that their orders come from the top, they come from the president. But the fact that nobody's resigned, nobody's come out and said, I won't be part of this. I will not accept this. I think that's very telling. You know, it's, it's uh, we've talked about that with General Milley and General Austin and and, uh, and, and the fact that none of the advisors that basically got us into this mess have resigned, which is a disgrace. But even within the lower levels of the State Department who tell me, oh, we, we agree with you and it's horrible and we're doing the best we can. Yeah, well then resign and come out and talk about it because that actually may change the change. The, that, that has been very disappointing to me. I think the other lesson I learned, and you know, I knew how tribal the mainstream media and the music media was, mm. but when um, when YouTube took the song down, the fact that I got more inquiries from Russia propaganda media than I did from the mainstream media, the music media, the Rolling Stones of the world, the entertainment media um, about freedom of speech issues, and uh, and how that whatever your feelings about my song is you know, I should, I should have the ability to sing it. That was very chilling to me. And also my colleagues in the music business. I had one person stand up for me. It was John Rich mm-hmm. and even country music artists who tell you, you know, well, they're, they're on that other side of the aisle and they're the Patriots and they're for freedom and free speech. Even some of them, and I'm not going to mention their names. Um, even they were afraid to support me because they thought the song was too controversial. So that to me was very disappointing. Um, but on the other hand, you know, I've seen America, the, the, the real America in these evac heroes, you know, basically just doing the right thing. So whenever I get depressed about, you know, the, the, the culture, I see people, you know, rescuing the folks we left behind and they're not quitting and their will and their honor. Um, they remind me who we are. So it's been this kind of teeter totter of anger and, you know, kind of just, awe of of the true the true patriots so it's been quite illuminating um and i'm sure it'll take a while to digest because we're still in the middle of it well yeah and and to that extent could you give us an update on sort of where things stand i mean there's no way to kind of dive into this enough um because it gets so buried in the daily media churn um, but there's still dire stakes and there is still a failure on behalf of our country um to take care of people over there so so what does the situation on the ground look like right now well, it, it seemed a couple of weeks ago that we might get some flights going again. Um, uh, and there was some folks, we, we, would, we had some manifests, we had some planes, we were raising money, we had some lily pads for them to go to, but that has kind of stalled. Uh, there's still some hope that we can get some folks out. We're getting a few folks out through unconventional means that I, pro- I won't talk about here because the State Department might come knock on my door or the FBI. <laughs> um, 
but we were really hoping to do that. Now there is some, as you know, there is some uh, policy trying to to get through Congress um, to help with this, um, to help with the clearances, to help with the lily pads, you know, the UAE folks that are willing to take people. But then you have the problem of you have a lot of folks that were evacuated, you know, initially in some of these lily pads and they're struggling where to go. So where do they go? And where do the refugees go? Um, there is a new group called Moral Compass. Um, there's kind of a segment of the corner more proactive Afghan evac uh, groups um, who really don't care what the State Department thinks or what our government thinks. They are focusing on these commandos um, because they realize that we'll probably have to go back in. Most of the people I talk to, um, frankly, from both sides agree that it's very likely we're gonna have to go back in. So the big national security fear is these commandos that we've trained, that we equipped, uh, as I said, you know, they have a chance of, they have a choice of either joining the Taliban or being killed. If we don't get them out, we're gonna be fighting them. And they know the lay of the land. So there's a big effort from that, from that group, Moral Compass, to get out as many commandos as possible. And, you know, Joni Ernst is talking about it. Blumenthal is still talking about it. I give, the, I give them credit. Um, Mike Waltz is still talking about it. Jason Crow. Um, you know, of course, Ukraine has kind of eclipsed Afghanistan, but they're connected. Um, so they're trying every day. Uh, they're raising money. Um, you know, folks who want to support them, you know, can go to the what kind of world do you want.com website because I'm basically just giving them the money we make or, or just Google these evac orgs. But, but they, yeah, they are still grinding. They still have the will. They're still getting people out. But um, boy, it's a tough slog. So you you just mentioned that uh, Ukraine and Afghanistan are connected. Can you elaborate on, on how you see those two issues being interrelated? Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, when I wrote the song, um, it really, you know, beyond the the moral, the humanitarian, as we talked about the national security, you know, aspects of Afghanistan, it really was more global for me. It was, I was scared mm. about the future to come because, you know, I'm old enough to um, remember the Soviet Union. Uh, I wrote a song in 2006 called China on the Horizon. Mm. So personally, I've seen China uh, for what it is for a long time. And to some extent, they've been held in check by the West. Uh, but when I saw us abandon our citizens to Afghanistan, I'm like, well, if you're Putin, if you're Xi and you're looking for your window and you have a president who calls this an extraordinary success and you have generals who are basically echoing the political narrative like Millie and Austin and the rest of them, if you're going to move, you're going to move in the next few years. Why wouldn't you? Hmm. And and I think, you know, we'll see what happens with Ukraine. Um, but of course, I, I'm not surprised. Um, and I think after the Olympics, likely we'll see uh, Xi go after Taiwan. Why wouldn't you? Um, so to me, those are geopolitical uh, actions that that uh, do threaten America and the future of America. Afghanistan, you know, it's going to be bad. There may be some terrorist attacks out of there, but it's not going to end our country. But um, you look at what's going on in Ukraine, you look at what's going on in Iran, you look at what's going on in China. I think that all goes back to Afghanistan, because if you abandon the people and the folks you promised to protect, why would you stop anybody else? Mm. 
how did you get interested in foreign affairs? I mean, mentioning the 2006 song, um, China on the Horizon, it's an amazing sort of flashback to a, a prescient um, outlook because around that time, if people were paying attention, is exactly sort of when you would have started seeing things coalesce um, into where they are now. So for you, um, what is it that's so fascinating to you about foreign affairs? And you know how, how has that played out over the course of uh, your career? You know, again, I, I, I think like so many, I, I, I just believe America matters. Mm-hmm. And without a, a world without America is a very dark, dangerous place. We're certainly not perfect. We have our issues. We have things to improve on. But, um, you, know, I, you know, again, I'm not a historian. I'm not a political expert. But I, I think the shining light on the hill, people look to us to lead. Um, and freedom matters. Free speech matters. Humanitarian rights matter. Um, and the fact is, you know, the communists are the bad guys. <laughs> you know, Reagan Bold was statement. Right. Reagan was right. <laughs> you know, they're the bad guys. Look at how they treat their people. Look at history. Every lesson in history. So it's nothing deep. It's just I, I see the threats, um, like pretty much everybody else does. And I see us basically caving to them and enabling them and appeasing them, uh, you know, starting, you know, 20, 25 years ago. And, and, and here we are uh, kind of realizing that. And I, I still think, you know, I have a song called Freedom Never Cries. And I do think when you grow up with something and it's all that you know, you can't really imagine it going away. And then all of a sudden history comes slamming the door down mm-hmm. and like, oh, this is the real world. And I think we're naive. I think we're soft. I think we're uneducated. And um, I think we're frankly shallow as a culture. And if you look at the things that drive the headlines on the news and all these things that consume us, that frankly in the big picture are so trivial um, without, you know, without freedom and fighting for freedom and standing up to, uh, to threats and aggressive, you know, communist dictatorships. Um, we don't get to have those dumb conversations. I love the dumb conversations because that means things are going good. But I think we miss the big picture. And, uh, and I think as a culture, um, that's incredibly dangerous. And it's playing out before our eyes right now. Do you think it's playing out in our pop music? That's a kind of a, a big question, mm. but it's interesting because 90s nostalgia is obviously really hot right now. And there was the Super Bowl just the other day um, yeah. that I think combined some really deep music with some really shallow music, like in the club. Um, but <laughs> something, I mean, Mary J. Blige is a, is a wonderful artist. Um, and yes, it was, it was yes she is. Interesting. Do you think, though, that there, the end of the 90s, there's, you sort of had the bubblegum pop, um, but there was also some, I mean, there are things on the top of the charts in the 90s that it just seems like they would never, um, you know, end up on the top of the charts these days. There was a depth, a depth to them, but maybe, maybe I'm remembering that wrong. What do you think? Do you think the the sort of top forty has gotten more shallow in in a way that mirrors our broader culture? Well, I was part of that bubblegum pop a little bit, so you know, I'll take some blame <laughs> for that. Um, but I, you know, I think I think you're right that. Um, Look, right, you had bands like U2, you know, writing in the name of love, right? You know, talking about Martin Luther King, like, you know, and certainly I think actually some of the hip hip hop artists um, were talking about real issues. Mm-hmm. You know, there are more cultural issues, racial issues, important issues. 
Um, and, and it was kind of cool seeing those, those folks come out again. But, I, you know, I think there's such a group think within the arts and the culture. And most artists, you know, most people in the music business belong to this kind of group think they watch the same news channels, they hear the same narrative, they echo the same kind of wokeism. They don't really have the educated history of um, of the bad guys doing bad stuff and the threats before they were born. They're kind of been born in kind of this kind of simple, easy age where we can basically, you know, you know, base our life's work on a pronoun instead of a million Uyghurs who have been thrust into um, bondage. Um, so I do think it's easy for our priorities to get completely out of whack, especially when the when not only the culture um, enables that, it rewards you for it. it. It rewards you for it. And there's really no consequences for being wrong. Mm -hmm. So I think that just kind of, um, and then of course you have the internet age and everything's, you know, segmented and everything's instantaneous. And it's a, it's a, um, it's an Instagram world where you'll get more probably lucrative hits from, you know, a video with your dog on Instagram than writing, cats in the cradle. Right. So I think there's a lot to it. And, but then of course there's the, like every curmudgeonly 50 year old, you yes. know, rock guy who had a hit 20 years ago thinks that was the greatest time ever. <laughs> um, so, you know, we, we have that as well, but no, I think, I think the proof in the pudding is, you know, ask yourself now, how many songs have you heard in the last 10 years you're going to hear 20 years from now. Mm. And I think it's, it's not many. I don't think there's going to be much greatest hits of this decade because, or the last, you know, you know, 15 or so years, because a lot of the songs are produced by the same stables. They kind of say the same thing. They're kind of generic. There'll be a few, but what are the greatest hits of, of, you know, the last 10 years? Um, I think that speaks to the culture itself. And I don't think we're going to hear many of those songs. Hmm. That's really fascinating. A question that sort of is along the same lines would be, um, I'm just thinking about a Canadian, <clears throat> a Canadian like Neil Young, yeah. um, as you have the Canadian uh, trucker convoy, trucker protest that's that's ongoing, Neil Young sort of came out and wanted to remove his music from Spotify and did remove his music from Spotify um, over Joe Rogan. And we could get into the whole Joe Rogan thing, but we don't really have to just to say that, you know, it's it's the our new approach to kind of free expression and platforming free expression um, seems to be very out of whack with the approach actually people like Neil Young himself took. Um, <laughs> and it does seem like you would think it would be the opposite, right? Like the aging hippie would be out there, you know, promoting the, the truckers as the sort of the man, giving the finger to the man and standing up to um, authority. And instead, he's actually trying to uh, shape authority so that corporations squelch the speech of podcasters. It's, a, it's an odd dynamic, but do you see that as sort of a similar thing that there, there is a shallowness maybe to uh, the, to the culture these days you know it, it's like a man in the high castle you just can't believe the world you're living in right, right. it's just so it's just so you can't believe it you see it yeah i actually tweeted a, a poster from 30 30 years ago of of crosby stills national young on a free speech tour right <laughs> that it was really called it was called the free speech tour and you know they they should know because they wrote songs protesting the man and there were consequences to them for that um, you know, as well as John Fogarty, as well as Bob Dylan. So, and, and back in the day when they had an issue with somebody, what would they do? They would write a song about it. 
Neil Young should have written a song about Joe Rogan. That's what a rock and roller does. He doesn't say, I'm going to shut you up and take your platform down. I'm going to write a song and call you out, buddy. But we're, but again, it's not just the artists. Look at Rolling Stone. Rolling Stone, supposedly this magazine of free expression and rock and roll and speak to power. They were trying to get Joe Rogan canceled too. You know, and, and I talked about this about Afghanistan. You know, when, when the kind of leading folk singer of Afghanistan was murdered outside his house, 30 years ago, Rolling Stone would have had that guy on his cover. We would be doing Live Aid concerts for Afghanistan. We would be screaming about the human rights atrocities, the women's rights decimation, children being sold for food. There'll be Live Aid. There'll be a Sun City. And what is it? It's crickets. I think people have been so brainwashed by the tribalism. Bruce Springsteen should be writing a song about Afghanistan. It'd be a much better one than mine. Um, but we've been so brainwashed by the tribalism. We, we watch the CNNs of the world. We read the New York Times. We think that's the Bible. Um, so I think it just reflects itself in the arts, which is, again, shallow and kind of meaningless long term, you know, at least in history's perspective. You've actually um, recently you put you put out a docu video um, to yeah. go along with Blood on My Hands um, and to sort of further your your protest and your highlighting of the atrocities uh, that have unfolded in Afghanistan since our departure from the country. Now, you actually interviewed the former vice president <laughs> of Afghanistan. Um, yeah. I mean, you've been in conversation with some really high level folks. Can you tell us about that interview uh, with the former vice president and, and what he had to say? I wish I could play you the whole thing. I have 30 minutes with him and it took two months to get, uh, you know, former vice president Sala on the, on the phone. And I was grateful to, to talk to him. He frankly was so disgusted with America. He didn't want to talk to much American media because he frankly blamed them for a lot of what's going on because their failure to, to cover the story, especially once we with, withdrew. So he was very angry, but it was important to me uh, for this piece, this video, to have an Afghan have the last word. Hmm. Um, you know, it's one thing, here's a singer guy, he wrote a song, he has opinions. That's good, you know, we need songs like that. But I really looked at this as more of a historical piece. Um, it was inspired by all the veterans, you know, who, who reached out to me saying thank you for doing this. But I wanted an, an actual artistic piece that had images, music, and words from those who were affected. So as you, as, as you know, the beginning of, of the, the video is just kind of a two minute prologue of news clips, not me telling you anything. It's just, here's what happened, here's, here's clips. And then the song being performed in front of the White House mm -hmm. with kind of images of, of atrocities. And, you know, I think he got it. I think um, when he said, Afghanistan is a mirror to America, I think he's exactly right. He's really showing us who we are now because we have so many folks that like to get on their soapbox and preach to us about, you know, our moral failures and, and how we, we need to do more for women's rights, gay rights, um, humanitarian rights, which I agree with. But when you see that play out in the real world, um, again, these, these, these EVAC groups, you know, they're getting out gay and lesbian folks, um, who've had their partners beheaded in front of them, um, women judges, children. But the folks that tell us about these things that matter, they, they've disappeared. 
um, the squad, AOC, you know, um, Nancy Pelosi, you, you know, Sala brought up Nancy Pelosi specifically in this interview, calling her out. Um, you know, it showed us that these folks, it's really about a power play. It's, it's not about, it's, it's not about the causes. It's about a power play um, to use these, these, um, these things that we're compassionate about. Um, but they really don't care. If they did, they'd be trying to help us get these people out. They'd be, they'd be advocating. So, so he's right. I think, I think Afghanistan has really put a mirror in front of us and it's not pretty. It's not pretty that our promise does not matter. If we say, we promise we'll take care of you. Oh, sorry, um, we're out of here. We're leaving you to the Taliban. So I think it really shows us who we are right now. And, um, but to hear it from him, you know, he said, you know, uh, write a note, you know, to your, to your children about Afghanistan and, um, and let that be a lesson for history. And that's not gonna be a good note if any of us have the courage to write it at all. There are a lot of people here at home who just feel exhausted with our attempts to sort of secure freedom in, in other parts of the world and to, you know, as they might say, meddle in uh, different countries' yeah. geopolitics. What is your uh, what what is your sort of like counter argument to that um, when you're you're arguing on behalf of the importance of this holding a mirror up to us and us reflecting something good? That's a that's a that's a good question. I actually had a, a long conversation with Tulsi Gabbard about this mm. um, when Afghanistan first came down because I was trying to make sure that when I spoke to the troops that I I, I spoke to them properly uh, with the right message, especially Afghan veterans who are suffering. And we talked about the fact that you can't save everybody. We it'd be great to save the world. It'd be great to save everybody who's poor, everybody who's destitute everybody who's being persecuted for their views. But we also agreed Afghanistan was different because we went in there. Mm -hmm. We, for better or worse, we took that country and we promised them um, that we would take care of them and protect them. So it's even different than the border. You know, uh, you know, the border is a very emotional subject for many people and I see both sides. But the folks at the border, we did not promise them that they could come here, they, they could be citizens, they could come here illegally. They're, but Afghanistan was different. It goes to the American promise. And it also goes to future uh, geopolitical um, crises. That if America is not trusted, if their promise doesn't mean anything, the calculations of our allies are going to be different. So again, I think, I think you know, we, it'd be great to save every, look, we saw in Iraq that look, we, you know, we can't change nation states overnight into like democracies, uh, pluralism that reflect uh, the West. Um, but I also think if you just put your head in the sand, uh, you're gonna pay for it. So I wish I had a better answer for you, but I do think Afghanistan's different than a lot of these other calculations um, for that exact reason, is that it was our promise and uh, we were the ones that broke it and the world took notice. And I don't think uh, the reper repercussions of that um, are gonna go away anytime soon. I think it's gonna last for decades. 
As we wrap up, could you tell us um, what has been accomplished outside the sort of official government apparatus? Because I know, I mean, you in many cases, you have to rely on the government to, to help and facilitate some of this, but you have been uh, part of an enormous effort on behalf of uh, nonprofits and private citizens and veterans um, to aid uh, and fill the sort of gaps or the vacuum that was left by our government. So can you talk about how much has been able to be accomplished um, without the help of the government, essentially? Yeah, no, I mean, thousands of people have been evacuated. You know, every person that comes out of life that's saved. Um, I think there's also been, because of, because of the fact that we're keeping the, the light on Afghanistan, it affects the Taliban's behavior a little bit. Mm. You know, they want the dollars. They want the billions of dollars released. You know, I am on a chain called atrocities, and there's atrocities every day. But, but you do see things like the children's orchestra evacuated. Do they care about the children? No, they just don't want the bad press, the mm -hmm. Taliban, right? So I do think um, kind of keeping uh, Afghanistan in the light changes their behavior. Uh, the folks that we're getting out, the folks that we will get out. But to be honest with you, it's, it's, it's not a really hopeful answer. It can't go on forever. Mm -hmm. You know, these, these, these groups, they, you know, it's very expensive. It costs five to $10,000 to get one person out. These people have lives, <laughs> they have families, they have jobs. And until there's actual policy from the government to assist in this and to, to become partners with these EVAC groups and the State Department and do the right thing, um, there's really not going to be a big move of the needle. Um, and I think we may have to wait till the, uh, to the midterm elections um, when the Republicans take the House uh, I think there will be a great effort with veterans on both sides, uh, Democrats as well, veterans, to really uh, put the light back on Afghanistan and try to turn the tide. And I think within the Senate, too, there may be some. So at the end of the day, we really need policy. We need to pass this Afghanistan legislation. And we need the American people to not forget. You know, at, at the end of the day, it's about us. And uh, we elect these folks. And uh, if, if, we, uh, if we just kind of shrug our shoulders and say, okay, on to the next you know, media story, then uh, we kind of deserve our fate. John Andrasik, where can people go to donate or to help or to get involved? Well, I do have this website that's at the end of the video. Um, it's called whatkindofworlddoyouwant.com. I've had it for a long time. Uh, we've raised money for many causes, ALS causes, Gold Star Families, um, uh, but we've now kind of focused it more on Afghanistan. So folks can go there. It's a 501c3 tax deductible. It's, it's run through the California Community Foundation. So it's not me. I never see the money. I just direct it. So they can go there, but they also can just Google, you know, the evacuation orgs, Task Force Pineapple, Project Exodus Relief, Task Force Argo, um, Save Our Allies, uh, incredible groups that all have their own 501c3s where they can donate directly. If folks uh, are really concerned about the mental wellness of our veterans, which is a huge component of this effort, there's no better place than the Gary Sinise Foundation. Uh, full disclosure, I'm an ambassador, and he's my buddy and my bass player at times. <laughs> but but if, uh, if folks want to really support the veterans, there's no better place than the Gary Sinise Foundation. I see what he does every day. We're actually working on projects for Afghan veterans. Um, 
so those are two two places you can go and uh, and be assured that your your money will go to the right cause. And you can, of course, watch John's video on YouTube where it was reinstated and go see him on tour. He's probably coming to a city near you. He's going all over the place this summer. Uh, those dates are up at fiveforfighting.com. John Andrasik, it was so lovely to catch up with you. Thank you for coming on and for all of your work. Emily, always a pleasure. Look forward to next time. Absolutely. Well, you've been listening to another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashensky, culture editor here at the Federalist. We will be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. You got me right where you want me.